0: If you don't, just sit sit quietly and chill, no big deal. Um, A couple of things. First of all, I have to issue a point of clarity. I think Michael um, last week mentioned that I'm a big Kansas City fan, and yes, I do support Kansas City Chiefs. I'm wearing Kansas City socks right now. Michael's over there, uh, so he can't hear that, but I will say this, that the Cowboys are still my team, 100%. The boys are my team. Good thing, thank, see, amens, I like it. So the good news is the boys play tomorrow night, so if we're a little late to the 12 o'clock game, that's okay. No big deal there. Though I will say the Kansas City Chiefs play at 12, so I'll try to get through this quickly. Um, but as uh, as Morris was saying, we're in the book of Philippians. This is week number two of Philippians out of 10 weeks, so I'll be covering the next section of Philippians, verses 1-1. 12 through 18. It should be a good time, Uh, but this morning we're going to continue in prayer. Got a slide up there, Bex. We're going to continue in prayer, Um, and so just like we do every morning or every Sunday morning, we're going to pray for a local church. We're going to pray for Pecan Grove Church just across the street, and we've prayed for Pecan Grove a couple of times uh, in recent uh, history, but their proximity I mean, we should be praying for them all the time. So, we're going to pray for them again. They are an elder-led church by Glenn Murphy, John Bannister, Paul Graves, Dr. Richard Johnson. I know nothing of those men, but that's who leads that church. And then, as always, we'll pray for an unreached people group. Uh, This group is in the 1040 window, the Sunda people of Indonesia. Last week, we prayed for the Burmese people. Uh, This week, we'll pray for some Indonesian people. It's all in that Southeast Asia uh, region. Uh, 38 million or 39 million, 38 and a half million people, half percent Christian, half percent less than 0.1 percent evangelical Christian, and their primary religion is Islam. So let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, just thank you so much for allowing us to be here in Greenville, Texas, um, in a beautiful worship center, um, free to worship you, God, um, just with the ability to uh, be with other Christians. Um, to uh, glorify your name in this room, God. We just praise you for that ability. Thank you for giving us that access. God, also thank you for Pecan Grove. Thank you for a partnership in the ministry with them, God. Thank you for proximity to them. Um, God, we were so blessed to have several churches within arm's reach of us right here, God. I pray that we are able to partner with them well. God, I just pray that we are able to uh, ministry, do ministry with them well in Greenville, Texas, God. I pray for their leadership, and I pray for their message that's occurring right now across the street, God. Just send your Holy Spirit there in a big way, God. Get glory in that room like nobody's business, Father. God, we just love you for that ability to be right next door to them. God, also, I just pray for the Sunda people of Indonesia. God, there's just not many followers there. And we just pray that you send followers there, God, that you raise up a people there that just worship you, God. Get glory in Indonesia today, God. Get glory among the Sunda people today. Father God, just raise up a generation that will go there um, and just herald your name, Father. God, I just pray that you start a revolution there, that you um, just, obviously the harvest is plentiful there. God, just raise up a nation to love you. God, I also pray uh, for this morning, our time together, um, God, that you just get glory, uh, that we just worship you well with the study of the book of Philippians, God. I just pray that, that you um, allow us to expose this word, God, send your Holy Spirit here to just do a work, uh, Father, and then when we leave here, God, I just pray that uh, we not only heard this word, God, that we actively walk it out outside this building. God, we love you, we love you, we love you. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. So, this morning, here's what the morning looks like. We're going to read the passage. We're going to have a little quick recap, quick-ish, kind of quick recap of what happened last week. If you missed last week, that's okay. We'll basically just kind of touch on it. If you were here last week, you get to hear it again, which is always great. And then we're going to read our actual passage that we'll be studying this morning and see what the Holy Spirit has for us there. And then lastly, we'll have a little bit of application, which will be great, and then we will take the supper. So, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, 12 through 18 says this, I want you to know, brothers, That I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to, or not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my pr- imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, last week, we learned a little bit about the city of Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi is in Europe. Uh, actually, it's in Macedonia, to be exact. Um, it's a pretty well-to-do city. It's sitting next to some gold mines and some silver mines. It's an agricultural hub. It's right on the way, it's on the Egyptian way, which is like a major thoroughfare for, for mercantiling or, or you know, peddling goods. So it's a pretty wealthy city for most The Christians there are not very wealthy, but for most, it's very, very wealthy. Um, It actually has a large Roman uh, soldier veteran population, which is kind of random, and it's also kind of a melting pot for different religions. So it's got all kinds of religions, mainly uh, that of the Roman paganism, but there is a small sect of Jews there uh, that worship Judaism, which is a pretty um, interesting factotum, which is why Paul kind of found his little comfort zone there. So, how did the church begin in Philippi? And this is something that we discussed at length last week. We're not going to go back over it again, uh, but just to kind of give the 40,000-foot view, you can find that in Acts 16, 6-40. That gives, that gives the account of the founding in the church at Philippi. If you remember, there was a lady, Lydia, who got saved. And then there was something about a demon-possessed, fortune-telling servant girl they got her demon cast out. And then the owners of that servant girl got really mad. They arrested Paul and Silas. They threw them in jail because their fortune-telling uh, demon-possessed servant couldn't make them any more money. Well, so Paul and Silas are in jail. And then they basically midnight comes and they start praying and singing hymns. God sends an earthquake, blows the doors to the prisons open. The shackles fall off their feet. A jailer comes in, and starts just freaking out because he thinks all the prisoners are gone. Next thing you know, uh, Paul and Silas kind of sprint out and say, hold on, we're all here. We're still good. Don't kill yourself. He was literally about to run himself through with a sword. So uh, out of an abundance of uh, worship for the Lord, he, he's, he, the Lord like stirs his heart. And so he goes uh, and brings Paul and Silas to his household And everybody in the Roman soldier, the Roman guard's household got saved and baptized that very night. Well, then the leaders of the community came and told uh, the jailer to set Paul and Silas free. And obviously that was an ordeal. And if you remember last week, we talked about that a little bit. Um, But um, so basically, Paul and Silas went, encouraged all the people that became converts there in Philippi, and then headed out to Thessalonica, where they started the church um, there, and where Paul ended up writing the the letter to Thessalonians. Um, So that's kind of the brief history, again, of how um, Philippi got started. But one thing that I wanted to put out there, um, and I said this last week, was Paul and Silas paid a heavy price for the church at Philippi. They paid a heavy, heavy price. Remember, they were Um, stripped down. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into the inner jail just for the church of Philippi. This was a hard win, but it was a big win nonetheless. You see, this was the first church that Paul established in Europe. It's crazy to think that Philippi was the church that was the gateway to the rest of Europe. The, The church in Philippi was like the springboard that put Paul into the european continent which started christianity in europe it's a pretty cool thing to say despite the hardships that were there the gospel prevailed despite those hardships the gospel prevailed so what the people of philippi were going through at the time so let's fast forward 10 or 12 years later after paul had already after paul and silas had already been to philippi the church was established with uh, lydia and the head of the Roman guards there, Um, the church is established, fast forward 10 to 12 years later, Paul is in jail, in Rome, and he's writing the letter to the Philippians that we just read. Now, something that I did not cover last week was why Paul was in jail in Rome, and if you thought the story of Philippi was crazy, uh, let me tell you, the plot thickens. The plot definitely thickens. So we're going to go on a little bit of a journey here. We're going to go on about a uh, two and a half to three year journey of how Paul got to Rome and why he's in a Roman jail. And I promise I'll be quick-ish, but I think it's important to know. And you can see this account um, if, you, if you're like, man, I'm, I haven't been reading the Bible lately. I just want to jump into something. Well, I've been, I've been in Acts, and it's, it's crushing me. So uh, in Acts 21, through essentially the rest of the book of Acts, you can see this account of how um, Paul actually got to Rome. But it looks like this. So Paul is going out to, um, to these countries and, and neighboring places, and he's preaching the gospel to Gentiles or to Greeks. And so if you don't know what a Gentile or a Greek is in the New Testament, those terms are interchangeable but it's a non-Jew. And well, you Neil, know, what's a Jew? Well, uh, a Jewish person is not only someone who believes in Judaism as a religion, it's an ethnicity, it's someone from Israel. So basically anybody that's not a Jew in this New Testament time frame is a Greek or a Gentile, essentially a, a pagan per se. And so that's pretty important to realize because Paul starts going and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is a pretty, um, pretty crazy concept here. Uh, taking a Jewish-ish type of religion outside of the Jewish um, community. So there was a small sect of uh, Jews that became Christians. They were called Messianic Jews. Uh, they started believing in the Messiah. So here you have it, you have Jews starting to become Christians. And then the, within that Messianic Jew sect, there's a smaller sect um, that believed that Christianity should only maintain in the Jewish or the Jewish um, culture. So basically, they didn't like what Paul was doing, per se. They were called Judaizers. Um, And so, you know, Paul had an open kind of argument and dialogue with these Judaizers throughout the New Testament, but one thing that was, uh, it was kind of funny is these Judaizers, they, they didn't like the gospel going out to uh, the Greeks and Gentiles. And, and thank God in here that, that that's not the case, that that's wrong because we're all pretty much Greeks and Gentiles, unless somebody's a Messianic Jew in here that I don't know about. But um, anyway, nonetheless, so these Judaizers said, okay, if by some miracle somebody outside of the Jewish community hears the gospel and accepts it, they should get circumcised, They should eat like a Jewish person. They should adhere to Jewish rules and the culture of Judaism. They should basically keep all the Jewish law. They should look like a Jew, talk like a Jew, walk like a Jew. And Paul basically said, that's not how this works. That's not how this works because it's not about works. It's not about what you do. You see, they were basically belittling what Christ did on the cross. They were saying that you've got to do X, Y and Z, and that'll make you a good Christian. And that is obviously false. So, Jew ha- or, uh, uh, Paul had this open dialogue um, and even argument with these uh, Judaizers. So, we have a typical Paul moment where Paul gets arrested again. So, why did he get arrested? Because he took two Greeks or two Gentiles into the Jerusalem temple. So, what basically happened was the leadership of the Jewish temple got really, really upset, and they ran to the uh, to the people's or to the uh, like the officials at the time and said, "Paul is defiling the temple. He brought non-Jews into the temple. We have to arrest him." So they arrested Paul again, and then um, he got put in front of a, a ton of different councils and tribunals. Um, he got tried and those councils and tribunals heard his case. So when they heard his case, they were basically mixed. There, some of them were like, well, he's not doing anything wrong. Others was like, yeah, he's, he's defiling the temple. He's doing terrible things. Well, lo and behold, there was about 40 different Jews who decided, okay, we got to kill this guy. Like, let's take this matter into our own hands. Let's just kill him and get it out of the way. So again, Paul is always in danger like, he is the world's, like, he's got the world's worst luck. I would stand about 50 feet away from Paul at all times. But, so, the governor at the time of this little, this little slice of heaven here, Felix, um, actually he was the governor of Caesarea, but it's kind of same, doesn't matter for the story, whatever. So he kind of heard of this plot, and he decided to send 200 Roman soldiers to collect Paul, and take him to Caesarea, where he would be kind of out of harm's way, and put him in prison there. Basically, Paul was starting a revolution. He was starting a revolt there in Jerusalem, so he wanted to kind of get him out of harm's way into Caesarea, which basically Paul spent about two years in prison in Caesarea, specifically just to get him off the street, just so the governor Felix would basically say, let's let this die down. Let's let this revolt, let's let these people kind of just calm down and chill out a little bit, let's get this guy off the street. So during his two years there in Caesarea where he was incarcerated, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal directly to Caesar. Now back in this day, if you were a Roman citizen, at any point you had the right to appeal directly to Caesar if basically your crime was bad enough. And so Paul had been tried and tried over and over and over again at different councils and things like that, and the decision was always somewhat split, or it was an indecision or something like that. So Paul basically got tired of it, and he's like, I'm going to go appeal to Caesar. And so this was a really bold move, because if you go all the way up to the top, the likelihood that you get an appeal depends on how Caesar feels that day, right? And if you don't get the appeal, it pretty much means execution. It means death. So the hope is pretty slim. I have a feeling that Paul made this decision either, obviously, by the Holy Spirit, or it was a dark night of the soul where he's like, I'm either going to rot in prison or I'm going to get away clean. So uh, let's go appeal to Caesar. So then, in that two-year span and after Paul had already appealed to Caesar, um, he actually got put in front of this king, kind of this like localized king, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa actually heard Paul's case, and he said, this guy didn't do anything wrong. He should be released immediately. But the problem was, Paul had already said, I want to go to Caesar. And so the, uh, the tables had started turning, the balls rolling down the hill. You can't undo that. He's committed. So he's got to go to Caesar. So this kind of starts this huge process. And remember, this is a two-year span here. This kind of starts this other, basically six-month-ish process of Paul getting to Rome. So, keeping in mind... Paul is still in custody right now. These Roman soldiers who are going to um, take Paul to Rome decide to set sail immediately. So it's kind of the winter months in Caesarea. They're going to set sail, and the winter months are historically where storms come about and stuff like that. Well, you guessed it, a huge storm hit. And so Paul, before that happened, was basically like, hey guys, we cannot set sail in this season. It would be dangerous. We're going to lose cargo and we're going to lose possibly our lives. Well, obviously the Roman soldiers weren't having it, whether it be pride or whatever, or they just really wanted to get to Rome quick. They set sail. So after a little bit, a storm hit and it said it was so bad that they couldn't see the stars or the sun or there was no daylight for days and days and days. So... Um, out of a drastic, like, last-ditch effort to save the ship, they chunked all the cargo over the, overboard. So they have no food, they have nothing like that, and they're just kind of adrift. And when all hope is basically lost, Paul stands up and he says, I told you so. You daggum people, I told you so. I told you we could possibly die here, but fear not, take heart, because a messenger from the Lord came to me, and he said, we're going to be all right. No one is going to lose our lives. Now, the messenger of the Lord did say we were going to crash on some island, but we are going to survive. So, lo and behold, about 15 days later, they start seeing that the the water depth is getting lower and lower and lower. Well, they end up hitting a reef. Here we are, Paul shipwrecked. Who would have thunk it, right? So there was about 276 people on board the ship at that time. That included some prisoners and, some, and obviously some Roman guards and maybe just some passengers. But 276 people, not one single person lost their life. They had to swim ashore because they're at a reef. Some of them couldn't swim, so they just grabbed onto ship planks and they just kind of drifted to the, to the uh, beach. And so they're swimming, swimming, swimming. Paul got to the beach, and Paul, like the gentleman he is, keeping in mind it's kind of like the winterish time frame, so it's a little bit chilly, Paul, like the gentleman he is, decides, well, I'm going to build a fire. That just makes sense. So he goes, and he's gathering up, you know, sticks and kindling and stuff like that, and he starts a fire. Well, this fire is looking good, and then he goes and he starts gathering some more sticks. And as he's gathering those more sticks, he got bit on the hand by a viper. Paul, I'm telling you, don't take Paul to Vegas at all. So Paul got bit by a viper on the hand. Well, this island that they crashed at was an island called Malta. You might have heard it. If you're really big into geography, you would know where Malta is. But there was some indigenous people in Malta, um, and they were, I can, I just, this, I'm making this scene up, but I'm pretty sure this is how it went. They're just like peeking behind bushes, watching everything that's happening, and they saw Paul get bit by a viper. They, they saw Paul get bit by a snake right in the hand, and the Bible says Paul shook the snake off in the fire. So Paul's a grown man. He's probably like, ah, you know, Uh, the the viper falls into the fire and the Maltese indigenous people, it says, they sat and waited for Paul to swell up and die. Well, the Lord protected Paul um, as the Lord does. Um, And so Paul actually ended up chilling on the island of Malta for three months, going around and curing all, or not all, but a lot of the incurable diseases of the Maltese people, He was curing people left and right, so much so that the Maltese people started honoring him, and they gave him a bunch of supplies so that once that three months was over and the winter months were, you know, kind of had subsided, that they could finish their journey and set sail to Rome. So, after all that, Paul finally makes it to Rome, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because he's still a prisoner. This whole time he's still a prisoner and he's in custody. So, Paul makes it to Rome, and he spent several days in jail. And this is likely likely where he actually penned the letter to the Philippians. So what we're reading in our Bibles is exactly what Paul was writing um, back, sitting in a jail cell, waiting for his uh, trial with Caesar's household. So essentially, what I'm trying to get at is he's on the chopping block. Imagine what you would write If you thought you were about to die, what would be your swan song? Well, Paul was sitting in a Roman jail cell writing to a people that were financially broke, getting persecuted, extremely scared and discouraged, and oh yeah, extremely young in their faith. They were broke because Christians in that day most likely lost everything to follow Christ. They were persecuted because they were seen as a nuisance and could start riots among people. Remember in Acts, whenever Paul and Silas were called uh, men who had turned the world upside down, that wasn't because they were all like fluffy bunnies. They turned the world upside down with their ideas. The Philippians were discouraged because they were afraid of what the imprisonment or execution of Paul meant. They thought the gospel was done for. They thought everything that they believed would be done for with Paul's execution, The church was only about 10 or 12 years old, and that meant the leaders of the church had only been following Christ for about a decade. That's a fairly young Christian. But it was a church that was a cheerful giver. It was a church that was praying fervently and who lovingly and immensely cherished the gospel with everything they had. And Paul, because he cared for them so much, on his probable deathbed, he is writing to them and saying, Thank you, Philippians, for your generosity. I'm okay despite my bleak circumstances. Endure, people of God, endure and live with humility. Remember, this is a culture that does not look fondly on humility. This is a culture that is all about honor and glory of self. They're all about the hero culture, not about humility. So, what we learned last week was that Paul's swan song was to tell the people that he loved, have joy in every circumstance. Dangerous, difficult, or not. Because your circumstance doesn't influence Christ's commitment to you. Remember, I used the example of the lens flippy thingy. Um, Like an optometrist, he is flipping the lenses of our faith through the exact combination of circumstances. One lens after another, gradually sharpening our spiritual sight, with each circumstance, with each flip of the lens, we learn to rely on him a bit more. Our circumstances are molding us, and Paul's circumstances were certainly molding him. Paul and us are required to find contentment in Christ and nothing else. We just have to be humble and we have to humble ourselves and endure. So, as a side note, I talked about the lens flippy thing, and if you weren't here last week, I was talking about when you go to an optometrist and they have the k- k- lens flippy thingy, and uh, Dr. Ketchum actually reached out to me after the sermon. He said, "Um, Neil, you know, I I don't want to say this, but it's actually called a four-opter. And so Dr. Ketchum is actually, uh, you know, really studied in all this, so I'm not going to say he's wrong or anything like that, but in my mind, a toaster is something that toasts, and a refrigerator is something that refrigerates, and a lens flippy thingy is something that flips lenses, so the two add up. And unless four means lens and "opter" means flippy thingy, I think it's wrong. But I don't think they asked me whenever they named that. So let's finally actually get to the reading of today's word. And we'll expose it a little bit now that the, uh, the recap plus is over. So Bex, you want to hit that slide? Let's talk about the first couple of verses in our passage, verses 12 through 14. Here we'll learn about Paul's chains. Dang, Bex is killing it back there. Love it. Uh, again, if, if you don't know me, I'm a, I'm a sucker for some slides just because I have this ADD thing, and I like pictures, and there's slides. It works. Okay, so let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest of that is my imprison- or that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by the imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, some of you might have been wondering why I told this huge story about Paul and how he got to the Roman uh, jail. What I don't want us to forget is in verse 12, the quotes, that what has happened to me is a huge deal. What has happened to Paul is no small matter. He has been shipwrecked. He has been beaten. He has been imprisoned. He has done all kinds of things. He didn't just stub his toe, okay? That what has happened is a big deal. I don't want to lose sight of that. Why was he beaten? Why was he shipwrecked? Why did he have to go through about 50 different councils and trials? Why was he bitten by a snake? And just as a side note, I hate snakes. So out of everything, I'd rather be in prison than bitten by a snake. But that's just my own personal thing. The list goes on. Why was Paul, why was everything that happened to Paul a big deal? Why did it happen? To advance the gospel. That's exactly what it says in these verses. All that happened to advance the gospel. And so I want to I kind of make a note here about the word that is used for advance. It's a procopin, And procopin basically, if you kind of boil it down to a nutshell, it means pioneer advance. And you'll see this exact word in verse 25 a little bit later whenever Paul's talking about the progress of the Philippians. It means pioneer advance. And it's a Roman military term, that that describes the engineers that would go before a troop, or before the army. Basically, you got the big Roman army, and then there would be a scout of engineers that would go before that troop to get everything ready, to rebuild the bridges, to lay the foundation, to set up camps, to do all this stuff to get ready for the big army to come through so they wouldn't be halted at all. They would just be able to go right through. So it was kind of this forward-thinking Um, Push, I guess you would say. So what Paul is doing by using that term here is he is highlighting the need to push God's kingdom forward versus dwelling on the past or worrying about the present circumstances. He has this forward-thinking mentality of advancement of the gospel, of progress, of laying the foundation of the gospel. Remember, lest we forget, the Philippians are kind of freaking out that everything that they did, that they gave, they gave their entire life for a gospel, that they are scared to death that it's going to be done for with the death of Paul. With Paul's execution, or even Paul's imprisonment, they think the halt of the gospel is over. But Paul says, nay, this is the advancement of the gospel. This has advanced the gospel. This has progressed the kingdom of God. So Paul's circumstances had opened up new areas of ministry. God ordained him to tell his story in Rome to all manner of leaders. Slide. Paul's circumstance led him to pioneer the gospel to new people in new ways. Look at that. I like it when things work out. The very birth of the church in Philippi shows us that. So Paul's circumstance led him to pioneer the gospel to new people in new ways. And what I mean by the church in Philippi as an example is that is because if you remember last week, Paul actually set out to go to Asia. He set out to go to Asia on a mission journey, and the Holy Spirit shut doors there, opened doors here, and somehow Paul ends up in Philippi. So the Holy Spirit had an idea of where, or well, the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul to where he should go. So that's why we see that the very birth of Philippi shows us that we're pioneering new ways to get to the gospel with Paul here. So, next slide. Something else to note. Paul wants to go to Rome to preach, but he ends up there as a prisoner. Because of that, he not only has the ear to common people, but he has the ear to the leadership of Rome Something that, that I want to point out here is that Imperial Guard is actually a Praetorian. That's like the Caesar's household. That's Caesar's elite troop. That is the inner workings of the government in Rome. This would have been an opportunity that he would never would have had if he just showed up on the streets of Rome. He had to go as a prisoner. I hope you're kind of picking up what I'm stepping in here. He was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They changed guards every six hours, so four different people in a 24-hour period were chained to Paul. This is Paul's dream. He got the chance to witness to four different people in a 24-hour period for six hours. I'm sure the Roman guards hated that. Not only that, he had prisoners sitting right next to him. This is Paul's dream. You see, they couldn't even go anywhere if they wanted to. Uh, I, I like, uh, I like thinking Paul's a beast like that. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. Um, But not only was Paul able to speak to uh, the government leaders and the soldiers and the guards and the prisoners, but he was also sharing his testimony. And Acts gives us a really specific account of Paul's testimony being told right in front of the governors of Rome, right in front of basically the government leaders of the powerhouse of the day. It would be like Paul going to the House of Representatives in the U.S. and saying, this is the God that I love, and this is what he's done for me. What a crazy time. So, next slide. What does that mean for us? It means Paul's chains didn't bind him. They freed him to share the gospel. It's a crazy dichotomy. Paul's chains didn't bind him. They freed him to share the gospel. You see, everyone around Paul these verses say, "Knew why Paul was imprisoned. Thus they knew the story of Christ. And now I kind of want to refer back to verse 14 a little bit here. Uh, I'll read it again, verse 14. "And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak with, uh, much more bold to speak with word, or the word, without fear. So in verse 14 here, it talks about the word "speak." And if you really break down that Greek word to speak, it means to speak. It does not mean to preach. Those are two very different words here. This really means to speak. This verse is not talking about preaching or heralding the gospel from a center stage. It's talking about a gospel-driven lifestyle. It's talking about when you're going somewhere, speak about the gospel. And so that kind of struck me as I was studying this week. Uh, It's pretty hard. And I'm kind of, kind of talking to Neil Payne here. Speaking the gospel is not just preaching. It's speaking the gospel. So we're going to go to the next, uh, next set of verses here, verse 15 through 18. And here's what we'll learn about Paul's critics. <laughs> Killing it, Bex. Killing it. Uh, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Next slide. It's simple. Some do it bad. Others do it good. The bad ones do it out of rivalry. They just want to win. They just want to save more people than Paul. They want to be bigger, and they want to be better. 1 Corinthians tells us that Paul isn't even really a naturally a good speaker. He's not even a great speaker. So maybe these bad people that Paul are talking about just want to say it more smoothly. They want to tell better stories or something like that. I don't know. Maybe they want to preach a prosperity gospel. Maybe they have a mullet. Maybe they preach in a megachurch in Houston or something like that. I'm just kidding. I didn't mean to call out Joel Osteen, but, um, but I did. By the way, the prosperity gospel is the furthest thing from the truth. I'll go ahead and say that right now. That's not what Paul's talking about here because he actually alludes to the people that are preaching kind of against Paul as preaching a sound gospel, as preaching a sound gospel. But nonetheless, in these verses, Paul actually uses Greek words that mean contention, and so he's actually basically saying these, uh, these people that are, that are rivals to Paul are actually using language like they're running for an office, like they're trying to like, get votes and stuff like that. So basically, the bad ones are not asking, are you trusting in Jesus? They're asking, what side are you on? They're asking, what side are you on? Maybe today, if we put that in today's language, it might be, Hey, what church do you go to? And not like, what church do you go to as in I want to celebrate that you go to church? In way of like, my church is better than yours, because what we believe is somehow greater and more esoteric and and more lofty than what you believe, or something like that. Maybe that's what it would be like. What church do you go to? But the good ones, the good ones do it out of love. Because they know that Paul is defending the gospel. Next slide. Paul says, no matter how, the deed is still done. Paul doesn't care how many people get baptized by other people. Paul doesn't care about anything like that. Paul doesn't care about if the church sound system sounds better at this church as that church. Paul doesn't care if the nursery has way better toys or like a rock wall or a slide or anything like that. Paul doesn't care if you attend the First Baptist Church of Philippi or if you go to the First United Presbyterian Church of Antioch, Paul doesn't care at all. He just cares about the gospel going forward. That's a pretty big sign of humility for Paul. Next slide. Paul rejoices because the gospel is being preached. The kingdom is advancing. Paul is not concerned with his own interests. He is only concerned with Christ, and that's it. Not only does Paul see the glass as half full because he's in prison... And because he's stuck with people all the time, and because he's giving people the courage to share the gospel, but he sees the glass is half full because knuckleheads are trying to out preach him. People are trying to out preach Paul, but you know what? They are preaching, and they are preaching the gospel. So Paul's like, go for it. I don't care. I feel like Paul is all sunshine and rainbows, even though he's been shipwrecked and and bitten by snakes and all manner of other junk, Um, and that just must be annoying to be around. (laughs) Lest we forget, uh, in the next few verses that Morris will talk about next week, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, no matter what happens, the result is going to be great. The result is going to be favorable. So... Let's get to the application. God sometimes uses strange tools to help us pioneer the gospel. In Paul's case, those tools were his chains, like it tells us in verse 12 through 14, and his critics, like it says in verse 15 through 18. Those tools allowed him to take the gospel even to the elite praetorian, even to Caesar's household, even to the imperial guard, So two questions. You can hit that slide, Bex. Question number one. What do you see as chains that you need to reframe and use for the glory of Christ? What circumstances do you think are a hindrance that Christ is actually using? Moms and dads, do you feel chained at home because you got to take care of the kids? Adults, do you feel chained at work just because you got to pay the bills? Students you feel chained at school just because you got to go? What are those chains in your life that, you, that you're perceiving as chains but actually aren't? Let's take a second to reframe those things. Let's see an opportunity to advance the gospel in those things. Let's rejoice in those things. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians to do. Hit that slide. Number two, what critics are you choosing to let win? Is it your boss at work? Is it your friends? What critics are you choosing to let win? Is it that voice in your head that says you're just not good enough? You're just not smart enough, you can't do it, you're doing it wrong. The problem is with critics, that's what they are. They're critics. The gospel is advancing no matter what. Be a part of that movement. Be a part of the movement to advance the gospel. That's the charge this morning. Be a part of the movement. Don't drown out the things that matter because of what others might say or even what you tell yourself. Hit that slide. Don't define your reality by your circumstances or those around you. Define your reality with what you have in Christ. So, Matthew 13, 44. Turn with me, if you will. It's a short verse, but it's a good one. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, Becoming a Christian is not believing. It's finding a treasure. That's what it means to become a Christian. You find a treasure. A treasure so great that it is better than any other treasure that you could imagine. You will give everything you have for it. It is worth more than just stuff, it is worth more than your circumstances, and it is certainly worth more than your critics. So, have you found the treasure? Have you found him? And I'm not talking about have you prayed a prayer, signed a card, attended a church, believed in some random doctrine or anything like that. I'm asking have you found him? Are you ready to give everything you have for him? Not saying that you have to, but you have to be willing to. Is he everything or are you making much out of what you're in right now? Timothy tells us to fight the good fight of faith. Which is to say, continually remember and work hard not to forget how good our treasure is. We forget so easily. The fight for faith is actually the fight for joy. And I'm talking about Neil Payne right here. I'm being real here. Instagram can easily become way more important than the Holy Word of God to me. When I wake up in the morning, the struggle is real for me to click the Holy Bible app instead of Instagram. And that seems ludicrous, that seems outrageous. It's war in the pain household every single morning with sin. It is absolutely war. But Paul saw the spread of the gospel as the primary mission. And what we find is that Christ was most glorified in Paul when he was most satisfied in the Lord. His circumstances and his critics did not change that. The same is true for us. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And Piper calls this term Christian hedonism. We just have to humble ourselves and endure. We don't let our circumstances or our critics define us. We let our treasure define us. Let's pray. God, you are such a good, good father. God, we know there is no prosperity gospel here. We know it doesn't exist. Help us to understand that an abundance of joy is not tied to how good our life is. Life is not going to get better. We know it's likely going to get worse. We know that an abundance of joy can't be based on the absence of affliction and can't be based on the presence of money. It is based in your son, Jesus. Help us to love our neighbor more and help us to love the lost even most. God, if you choose to take everything from us, help us to still call it gain. Amen. Hmm. Those kids' voices are my favorite. Tug a brother's heartstrings. So here we're going to go into the supper, and I'm going to give you about 60 seconds. If you uh, did not grab a supper on the way in, I'm going to ask, yeah, Morris... Um, is going to go grab a tray and pass it around or uh, just raise your hand if you, didn't, if you didn't grab a supper coming in. It's not weird. Nobody's going to like look at you or anything like that.